It's time for episode 99 of Love That Album Podcast. If you live in Melbourne and you've attended pub gigs over the last 25 years, chances are more than likely that you've seen Chris Wilson perform. He still plays many gigs but was ubiquitous on the local band scene during the 90s in particular. He has a strong passion for the blues and country, but these styles suggest his music without dictating it. Chris has performed with Crown of Thorns, the incredible guitarist Shane O'Mara, the Spider-Men, Diesel, the various incarnations of the Chris Wilson band, and more recently as a solo performer. He's also been a session player for many musicians you definitely know. Chris has many musical talents. Most people focus on his rich and dramatic baritone voice or his skills as a harmonica player. On this episode, Morris wants to pay tribute to his skills as a songwriter, easily the equal of any great songsmith on the planet. He speaks to Chris on the 25th anniversary of his important album, Landlocked. They talk about where it sits in his repertoire, the great band that brought the album to life, Strippers, Love, Alimony, and how Crowded House nearly upset Chris's mother. So grab a beer and listen to Chris and Morris chat about Landlocked and Hairy Legs. listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? speaking welcome to episode number 99 of the love that album podcast it's taken five and a bit years to get to this point next month we're going to crack the ton but we're not going to talk about episode 100 just yet because we're doing episode 99 if this is your first time listening to the podcast welcome on board the purpose of this show is to talk about well albums that i love or albums that my co-hosts love and sometimes though i get to do interviews with musicians that i really dig and this episode is one of those types of episodes and this time I've got an artist lined up who I think I've really wanted to talk about since the very beginning of Love That Album. I'm not really sure why it took to episode 99 for me to get round to him, but there you go, better late than never. The artist under question is Melbourne singer, songwriter, harmonica player, saxophone player, guitarist, 
Jack of all musical trades and a teacher as well, Mr. Chris Wilson. I've gone and raved on about him a lot on the Love That Album Facebook page, but now I'm actually going to do it on the podcast. So we're going to be talking about an album that's celebrating an anniversary this year. 25 years ago, he went and released an incredible record called Landlocked. Uh, He had a superb band. This is his first album, Beyond the uh, band that he'd had before that called The Crown of Thorns. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. The band on this album features Peter Lucky Luscombe, who people may remember from the original incarnation of the Black Sorrows, but certainly if you've been a watcher of the Rockwiz TV show, and really, and if you live in Australia and you're a rock fan, who hasn't been watching Rockwiz? He's the drummer of the Rockwiz Orchestra, and he's done sessions for tons and tons of musicians locally. The guitarist for this particular lineup was Shane O'Mara, and and Shane and Chris have a long history, both in this incarnation of the Chris Walson band and also as working as a duo. And they put out together an album that gained a lot of popularity in 1994 called Chris Walson Live at the Continental. And we touch upon that in the interview that you'll hear later on. But Shane had hitherto been working uh, in the Stephen Cummings band and later went on to work with his wife, uh, Rebecca Barnard, in their band called Rebecca's Empire, which I think might have also featured Peter Luscombe on drums in that as well. And the bass was a, a fellow who had long worked with Chris Walson in the band Crown of Thorns, and that was Chris Rogers. Now, Chris had been playing around in the Melbourne scene since, I think, the mid-'80s uh, with bands like the Soul Twisters, Harem Scarum, which also featured an incredible singer in Christopher Marshall. But whereas, I guess, Chris Wilson's voice went into the more baritone range, the more operatic baritone range. Christopher Marshall was definitely more of a tenor. And I don't really mean operatic in the classical sense, but more operatic in the dramatic sense of things. Beyond Harem Scarum, though, Chris went on to form the band The Crown of Thorns. They released a couple of albums and a mini album and had a bunch of uh, musicians in that band who also, like Chris, went on to do other exciting musical things. Uh, People like Barb Waters, uh, who formed a band in her own right. Peter Jones, who was a great drummer, sadly no longer with us, but uh, was something of a really wonderful session drummer, uh, played for the last live incarnation of Crowded House before they originally split up. Ash Davies, another really wonderful Melbourne-based drummer, and I think something of a multi-instrumentalist as well. And Barry Palmer, who went on to play with the Hunters and Collectors, and he's spoken a little bit about in the interview with uh, Chris coming up in just a couple of minutes. Look, basically, our conversation will focus a lot on Landlocked. We wanted to make that, well, at least I wanted to make that the focus of this Love That album. There's so much I could have spoken off with him about, and we did go to a, a whole bunch of digressions, which really made for a, probably a far more interesting conversation, I think. But there's plenty about his career that, unfortunately, you know, we didn't cover this time around. To be honest, I probably could have had a three or four hour conversation with Chris and still not covered everything I wanted to. But, you know, we went and worked mainly with the focus of Landlocked, but, you know, Chris is really wonderful at saying, look, that reminds me of something else, or let me tell you about this. And it was just really wonderful to have those sorts of digressions. So I hope that you get a feel for how really wonderful this album is and we talk a lot about the history of the band that particular incarnation of his band and I have to say they were absolutely killer live it's a great studio album but this particular incarnation of musicians that Chris played with and he's always played with great bands but this band was really absolutely killer in a live set if you're a listener who's a longtime fan of Chris like I am I'm sorry if I haven't covered all that you would have liked but I hope that this is a really good snapshot 
of that period where landlocked came in. We also touch a little bit on live at the Continental. I guess you couldn't help but do that. But unfortunately, you know, didn't bring in anything to do with the uh, Wilson Diesel collaboration. Nothing really about the Crown of Thorns. You know, my bad. Maybe I'll speak to Chris again for another episode to talk about Carnivore gnawing on the bones of Elvis or something like that. But yeah, just I really hope that if you haven't heard Landlocked before that you're tempted to go seek it out. In brief, Landlocked is a beautifully crafted album. It's rootsy in many ways, but not exactly an Americana album. It's been compared to Captain Beefheart, and I can sort of see that in some ways. It's not quite a completely accurate comparison, but there's definitely some Beefheart influence in what he does. I love all his albums, but this is absolutely a perfect storm. Amazing songs. The musicians are on top of their game. The production that allows these songs to breathe. It sounds like it was recorded in a beautiful open space, like a church hall or something like that. We play some snippets of tunes throughout the show, and hopefully you'll really dig on that. If you already know the album and love it as much as I do, then I hope that there'll be some insight as to the creative process that went behind the album, as well as what Chris was doing in terms of his travels around the world, what inspired it, the blues musicians and rock musicians who really sort of uh, inspired him to do what he did. And it's not just limited to big names. He talks about a local guy who really encouraged him to follow his dream of uh, being you know, a full-time musician. As I said, he is working as a teacher as well. But for so many years, he has had a really huge presence over the local music scene. And as you get to hear later on in the interview as well, he's really admired and loved by a lot of very, very big musicians. And for those of you outside of Australia, there are some songs that you will definitely know him for, even if you don't know that it's him. So more of that to come. I really hope that you dig the show. Also coming up after the interview, Eric Reanimator will be back with his album I Love segment. This time he's talking about a band called The Haints and their album Hurt and Alone. Uh, and it features members of the Groovy Ghoulies in country mode. Some really interesting stuff there. So stick around for that later on in the show. And following uh, Eric's segment, I'll give you some information as to what to expect for episode 100 of love that album i'm really very very excited for that to be coming up next month was never sure that i was going to get there but here we are so uh, anyway for the next uh, 55 minutes or so please enjoy my conversation with the great chris wilson we hope you're enjoying the show you can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Love That Album and start a music-related discussion.
welcome back to episode 99 of Love That Album Podcast. I'm really very, very excited because this time around I have an interview with one of my favourite singer-songwriters out of my hometown of Melbourne. Well, he's down the Bellarine Peninsula, but that sort of counts. Mr. Chris Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to be with you. As I've already gone and mentioned earlier on in the program, the focus of this chat is on an album that was released 25 years ago. Yeah. It, it wasn't until actually after I contacted you to speak about the record that it occurred to me that it was an anniversary. I'm all the yeah. more excited to be speaking about this. Uh, well, I had no idea it was, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, cool. So the album is Landlocked, was released in yeah. 1992. Yep. Before we get actually into discussing about the album and my discovery of it and how you came to create it. I just wanted to basically set the scene maybe for uh, the listeners out there both locally and overseas. I just wanted to know, it's like back in 1992, how much do you recall about the Melbourne band scene of 1992? I mean, I remember they were like on the blues scene, which you would have had an affiliation with. There was yeah. the, the Paramount Trio and Kerry Simpson and the Mudcats and all those sorts of bands. And But I'm struggling, I mean, apart from... Maybe Stephen Cummings. I'm, I can't really remember who was locally doing stuff in the rock scene in 1992. Who were, who else was playing the pubs as much as you guys were? Well, as I as I recall, it was uh, it was a pretty healthy time actually. There were a lot of venues. Uh, Brunswick Street was in full bloom. There was well, there was the Dan O'Connell, which was close by, and then there was the Royal Derby, and then there was uh, the Punters Club, which was the epicenter of it all. And there were like there was a string of venues, the Evelyn. Didn't the yeah. Evelyn Hotel name a room after you? And that was the Punters Club. Oh, the Punters, of, okay. I, I sort of purloined that <laughs> that room, really. I, sp- I, think I felt like I'd spent that much money in it that they owed it to me, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. But there was lots of, you know, there were lots of great bands and they were sort of, they were, there was not a lot of, um, well, they were, they were, they were strong focused bands, you know. Mm-hmm. I think Blue Ruin was around then. I'd been, I'd, I had been in, uh, Harem Scarum, which played around that area. Right. But, um, I'd been playing sort of duo gigs, you know, mainly with Shane O'Mara at that time. I was actually under the impression that the duo stuff with Shane didn't take place until like maybe a couple of years after Landlocked had been released. Oh, we played together on and off all around there, you know. Okay. Um, you know, Live at the Continental, that album, that was sort of the, the, the peak of all of that. But right. Yeah, it was like, it was a sort of, it was a funny time, I guess, because it was, there were a lot of bands, but you had to be able to play in different formats in order to, to be playing. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of changing, you know, the inner city was getting, becoming more gentrified and sound restrictions became an issue and, you know, it was starting, it was starting to change, you know. Right, But right. around that, like I used to play at the Punters Club all the time and I'd play band gigs, duo gigs. Stuff like that. I wasn't playing guitar on my own at that at that point, mm. so I always had at least one other person with me, you know. But it was it was quite an interesting time. I played used to play with Andrew Pendlebury as well. Yes, I, I remember actually seeing you mm. perform with uh, Andrew Pendlebury, and I think it was might have been the album launch for the Long Weekend CD at the old Universal Theatre in uh, Victoria yeah. Street. Mm. <clears throat> That's right. And I did a I did a big sort of I guess you'd call it a sort of retrospective show there as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> It was a really good time, you know. Like it was a really rich musical period for Melbourne, you know. Mm. There was no, there weren't any. I guess there, it wasn't quite as arty as some of the bands had been. They were more focused, sort of harder, harder hitting. Yes. You know, the artistic side of it wasn't as 
as pronounced in the band as it as it sometimes had been in Melbourne. Well, it's it's yeah. interesting because I know that like with the Australian scene in general, or well, I guess Melbourne because you know it's yeah. what I know for the band scene. The eighties was very much. Uh, and the 70s was very much a pub rock scene and less yeah. arty, as you say. But a lot of that arty sort of stuff and or, or the alternative scene really came through in the, in the 90s with, I guess, Triple R and PBS sort of pushing themselves yeah. forward a lot more. Yeah, well, if you played in the in the pub rock scene, which is, I came, I began sort of on the arse end of all of that. And that was the, the twilight years of the really big beer barns. I was playing, and well, they soon knocked the arty stuff out of you, you know. Like, it did, you know. You, you had to cut right and trim all the fat, you know. The audience would soon let you know if they thought you were being pretentious in any way. And it was a great leveler, you know. It was like you really had to... Um, the wonderful thing about Melbourne, has, I felt, has always been that they'd come and watch the train wreck and then they'd come back again to see if it was as bad as they thought it was the first time, you know. It was, it's a town where you get a second chance. Or it has it has been in the past. If you hung hung in there mm. and you started to get your act together, then you might be able to continue. You know. So, do you feel that you sort of progressed as a performer from getting that sort of feedback for better or worse from uh, from the audiences? Because by the time I got totally this, from the time I got yeah. ready to sing here live, the audiences were mesmerised. Well, they they sure weren't always that way. Like if you get a, even a bit out of Melbourne, you know, like it, you have to um, have to deliver directly to them you know which i think is a good thing i mean that's one of the things that you notice well i noticed when i went overseas and saw people playing it was like the work ethic inside the bands in australia was you know you had to come off the stage sweating otherwise you hadn't done a night's work and it was right. very blue collar in that way you know it was like the um the way that australian musicians attacked their instruments yep. they never let the amp do the work for them they always drove the amp you know and that was an ethic that we like i was like when i was in here in scare and and the, and the band called the soul twisters we thought that you know we, we'd listen to chess records and think they were going berserk in the studio and i found out later they weren't but it was like sort of the tyranny of distance we had made up this fantasy about how it was done mm. set out to play that way you know and you know we thought it was brutal you know so mm. But that stood everybody in good stead, though, because everybody tried really hard. I don't know many bands that were sort of holding back, you know. Yep. Into my introduction to your music, I first yeah. heard uh, your single, The Big One, in yeah. early 92. I think it was early yeah. 92. So the CD was available in uh, Brashes and Elizabeth Street, if you remember that. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I just yep. I had a look at it and I thought, oh, local guy, all right, I want to give this a go. And I bought oh, this, bless you. <laughs> I, bought, I bought the CD, I bought the single, yeah. took it home, and I swear, Chris, I played the big one about five or six times before I got into the bonus songs. And I'll come back to those in a few yeah. minutes, but everything about the song, it was truth in advertising, you know, Shane's guitar, Lucky Luscombe's incredibly yeah. distinctive drum style, uh, yeah. and then your vocal, this big operatic vocal, and... That we will gather pearls along the shoreline Those indiscretions of the heart that cause us pain 
will disappear like shadows in a coal mine. Well, I believe in love like a tear drops from angels or as wine from above. I believe in love. I want to talk a little yeah. bit in a few minutes about the song itself, but yeah. I just want to ask, did you know that you wanted the sound of that song and indeed the rest of the album to come out like it did because coming back to Crown of Thorns uh, yeah. music like a little later on for me I found that, yeah. that the production of that was a bit more restrained if that makes sense and this everything well, about this was big well it was budgets really I mean and we had a little bit more money with that one like that was on Aurora which was a that landlocked album was on Aurora which was a it was a sort of a peak label off Mushroom and it mm-hmm. was um, it was I think Kylie Minogue had been big within Mushroom and there was a bit of money floating around and Michael Degedinski, I think, wanted this, an acoustic boutique label. And Archie Roach was initially on it and uh, Broderick Smith did an album on it. And, no, they were sort of sniffing around for people that could be on the label and they approached me and they said, can you do some demos? And I said, well, okay. And, And it was supposed to be purely acoustic, but I made these demos with drums and bass on them and they said oh we'll keep going you know and no which which i've had a really good i had a really good run out of mushroom you know like artistically they i got away with just about anything i wanted to do they never grumbled you know i was really lucky in that way so you did have a good run of albums uh, right through up to the long weekend so yeah i was really yeah well you know uh, you know i don't want to get off what you want to talk about but the long weekend was a double album that came in under 30 dollars you know and i'm like i insisted on that and they didn't and there was some pretty you know one or two pretty bent things on that and they never complained that was i was really lucky you know aurora and uh i started making this album you know how did you actually lure players like lucky luscombe and shonamara and chris rogers to yeah um, chris oh well chris rogers i'd played with I played crown. with him for like 25 years. Like oh, wow. he played with me all through Crown of Thorns and mm. various other weird little offshoots. And you know, I'd known him since he was in the Strange Tenants, which was a started out as a straight ska band, but became much deeper than that. Not that there's anything wrong with ska music; it's beautiful. But yeah. you know, they they way more varied than that is a bit of way of putting it. Yeah. And he just came and played with me, and we we went we, we did everything together. You know, we went all over the We've been wandered all over the bloody place, no, you know, overseas. And I think Shane, I met through a fellow called Michael Lynch, who was my manager for a while, and we were introduced. And he had a small recording set up, and so I did some demos with him and then said, do you want to do some gigs? And, and Peter Luscombe was a friend of Shane's, and he, uh, well, you know, he was top of the heap as far as drummers were concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so, you know, we became this band. But then when I made the album, I needed people to play on it and play it live, and they and they were pretty good good in that way. They they were delighted to do it. And, yeah. You, you but it was an interesting time. It was still, we recorded it at uh, AAV in South Melbourne, mm-hmm. and it was when there was still, there were a number of large-ish studios in Melbourne, you know, and we weren't in the biggest one, but we were, I, 
I got a pretty fair run out of it, you know, and it was Doug Roberts was the engineer. Yep. Yeah, he was, he, he was in a lot of recordings around that time, wasn't he? Yeah, well, he was bloody good. I, be, I became really good friends with him and, you know, we started making an album. Mm. It, was, it was really interesting. It was a good time. And I, so then I said about writing more songs for it, you know, because uh, leading up to making an album, I didn't really have a full albums with the stuff, so I started writing. Mm. Yeah, I, I want to ask you some stuff about the actual songs themselves. Uh, yeah, on, sure. On go the ahead. album, as I've already gone and indicated, I was completely blown away with you know what I heard with uh, the actual title song, the big one, and you know, the, yeah. the the music was grand and and big, not stadium, not impersonal, but it was still had this large sound. But what, I know what you mean. But what yeah. really grabbed me was your lyrics. I've always sort of thought that. First okay. and foremost, an incredible lyric writer. I, I, I love oh, you, you. You, you. You've got these. Uh, you've got these words. I believe in time to come that we will gather pearls along the shoreline. Those indiscretions mm. of the heart that causes pain will disappear like shadows in a coal mine. I can't mm. remember to that time having heard anything as beautiful and articulate about love and emotional. Well, it was. They were great words, but there was there was emotion in them. It was great poetry but and when you sing i believe in love i'm, I'm yeah. sitting there thinking fuck he really does believe in love uh, so yeah did, well thank you did, did you arrange well, it with the band in mind or was that something while you were while you still sort of been considering doing this as an acoustic album what what did you have in your head oh no i thought that was an electric song and i really wanted shane to do uh like to have a really i wanted him to really nail an exceptional solo for that tune like for his sake and um which he did of course and hmm. yeah it just oh no we sort of i got bigger in the studio if you know what i mean like we started trying different stuff and it just started to take on a, a larger um personality that tune you know hmm. I reckon, you know, like the drum sound in the first part of the song sort of sets the tone for it, you know. It's like it's a big drum sound. It's not mm, John Bonhamish, but it's the way it's played, you know, the way that Peter played the drums at the intro of that song. I thought was really important. You know, I did a film clip for it, you know. I didn't know that. Wow. Is that, yeah. on, is that on YouTube anywhere? I'd love to see uh, it. I think it is, yeah. I did a film clip for it, but I did it in a karaoke bar, you know. Huh. And because I was such a bad mimer, I thought if I do it <laughs> in a karaoke bar, it doesn't matter if I'm out of sync with it, you know. <laughs> I just think that I'm pissed. But uh, my mother is in that film clip with one of her friends, you know. Oh, wow. like they're, they're in the in the sort of cr in, in the, well, the crowd, but, you know, in the people that are sitting in the karaoke bar. Mm, mm. And that's, that's when you were talking about those singles that I did. Some of them I did because I liked them, but there are other songs on those singles that I did because um, my mother liked the songs. Well, actually, I was, I I was going to ask you about those, uh, yeah. those other songs because apart from uh, maybe uh, the, the, the song that you do by the Saints, yeah. all, uh, all the rest are, like, you know, Summertime and Ain't No Sunshine yeah. and... It's sort yeah. of, I mean, great songs all, but very, very different from anything else that you recorded for the album. Well, they were the sort of things that we were doing as a duo, but some of them were songs that my mother liked. So I wanted her to, to like what I did, you know. <laughs> so I thought if I put these songs on there, it'll make her happy, you know. <laughs> we all do. So, we all do. Yeah, but I used to put like, like, say, I don't know how many, but three or four 
songs on there and they were, Mushroom was complaining because they said, look, this is getting into mini-album territory. It's not a single anymore. And I'm just going, oh, okay. But uh, it was, you know, we'd go in and, and the other one of the other players on those singles was a fella called Draw Arez. Oh, I was going to ask you about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He ran IDs, which was the precursor to the Continental. But right, he was also right. a beautiful piano player. And I remember playing, I do gigs at the Punters Club with him playing piano with me, just the two of us. And um, he had like what you might call perfect pitch, so he could sing a song and write you out a chart. And he was a, he, but he was, a, he was a beautiful piano player for a singer. He knew how to compliment a vocalist really well. And um, I did lots of gigs with him. Doesn't shine on me. I'm like an old man. I'm running to find the shore and the light that's shown in your eyes. It doesn't shine no more. So wait on till tomorrow. Maybe then we'll see. You know, I don't know. We used to do these uh, collective gigs with Vicar and Linda Ball and Deborah Conway and Stephen Cummings and Shane and Rebecca Barnard and we'd play at um, IDs and stuff like that, you know. Mm. So, yeah, and draw, you know, draw was wonderful player. I, I think I read somewhere that he played briefly for Chris Bailey's band. Was that the same time that you were playing with uh, with Chris Bailey? Oh, it was around that time, yeah. yeah well. Chris Bailey was, well, he used to come down from Sydney on Friday nights on the plane and we'd play at the Royal Derby. And I was like, I was totally honoured because the Saints are one of my top three bands ever. Nice. And of all all periods of the Saints. and But he, we'd sound check and then he'd sit at the bar and anybody could approach him and talk to him and it might be a couple of really shy young punks or it might be you know some hardcore drinker but he would talk to anybody on any subject you know and he was an incredibly knowledgeable bloke but totally accessible and humble and then we'd do these gigs and they'd be outrageous you know hmm. yeah. just wanted to come back to the songs on the album for a bit of course um if now, i go off the track just pull me back in on my family you know what that's what makes an interesting interview in my opinion mm. it, it's the uh, the detours i don't always want to mm. stick to the main path okay one of the themes on the album and you know as yeah. i guess a lot of pop music is based on is love but i always sort of yep. wondered whether you were having a bit of a laugh having taken the piss by following up a great song like The Big One where you sing yeah. emphatically how much you believe yeah. in love and writing so poetically about it and then you go and write equally poetically and maybe with a lot of black humour in the second song on the album which is Alimony Blues You took my happy home You left me on my own Like a dog without a Street lights start to shine 
yeah. you follow I believe in love where yeah. you got a heart like a wrecking ball you're tearing down oh, doors I... and walls while I just watch them fall sequencing the album was that supposed to yeah. be uh, something you thought this would be a bit of a laugh I didn't sequence it in terms of the themes. I, I would have sequenced it in terms of what I thought fit, you know? It wasn't like, I don't really know why I wrote that song. I've never been <laughs> divorced or, you know? Yep. It was just, uh, God, that, I, don't, I don't have a, a rational answer for that. It was, <laughs> just it was a, unconscious, you know? A happy but the, 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 the big one was sort of what I thought about, you know? Mm. How I felt about the world, you know? was like that was that was you know I just saw that I was trying to put in a nutshell what I felt about the nature of the world if you know what I mean I don't sure. know if that sounds pretentious but no not at all the Alima, Alimony Blues I thought was more like a a country-ish song I did a film clip for that one too I was out in the middle of a paddock with all these line dancers and stuff I don't know whatever happened to that film clip I've never I've never seen it I haven't seen it for years I've seen the big one film clip, but I haven't seen the one for Alimony Blues. You know? Oh my god, I'd love to! Mm. I'd love to track those actors. I did uh, do like I did do a few YouTube searches to see what was out there. Yeah. And I saw like your performance of uh, Shootout at the Seven Eleven on Recovery and, and um, where they don't, they kids don't have a bloody clue what I'm doing. <laughs> you know? mm. Uh, but there's, that's okay. there's a few things there's a few things out there but I haven't seen clips for either of those songs I'd just love to see them if, mm. if anyone out there is listening and they know where it is uh, send me a well, link one of them is on, on YouTube I don't know but I don't know where Alimony Blues is that's got me bugged I don't really know Right. Was there anyone who, like, as a poet or an author or a filmmaker, I'm moving away yeah. from the idea of other songwriters, but yeah. anyone who influenced you in terms of writing lyrics like this? I mean, I know you're a big Bob Dylan fan. You've kicked yeah, your name, am, the, yeah. caravan, the Caravan Club yeah. tributes yeah. to Bob. But yeah. really, in terms of other mediums, is there anyone, or even other songwriters, who really influence the way how you write lyrics? To me, there's, there's three songwriters that, in Australia that I look to, and that was... Well, Chris Bailing was number one. Mm. I just couldn't get over some of his writing, and I still can't. I mean, my son is into the Saints now, and we just listen to the words, and we have different interpretations of them, you know. Yeah. But Ghost Ships is an amazing song. Mm. And But not only that, uh, I'm Stranded and Know Your Product and his staples of Australian rock music. But, I, you know, I, I played with him, and I was sort of, I did recording with him that came out on B-sides and that, but it was just him and me in a studio and he'd be playing his, like, you know, his favourite songs for B-sides and stuff. I know that Doug Roberts had a tape of Chris Bailey in the studio just playing Irish traditional stuff that I've dearly loved to hear. So that was him. And then I played in X with Ian Ryland and Steve Lucas and Kathy Green for about a year and I couldn't... Like, to me, they, they wrote with such a sense of high romance. Like, if you were going up the street to buy the milk, it would be, like, <laughs> the most crucial thing you ever did, you know? And I just loved the directness of them and the way that they were able to imbue with this, you know, heightened sense of joy of life, you know? And it was the, they were the X was the greatest band I ever, I've ever stood on the stage with. Like, on a good night. They was nothing in the world could touch them. They're incredible to be a part of, and I was—I knew that I was in the midst of something that was unique and gigantic, you know. At home with and you, the album I've played quite a lot around here. I got to tell you. Yeah, oh, look, I would turn up to play, and they played long gigs, and I'd turn up to play, and it'd be like 
a bit haphazard, like, what the hell am I doing here, you know? And then all of a sudden, they go click, 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 and you go, that's why I'm here. Like, I can't, you'd be hanging on for grim death because it was so powerful. I just loved playing with them. But I was always in a quandary with them because whenever I played with them, Ian Ryland would always want to extend the songs. And that, to me, it was when they were concise, sharp, and to the point. So as a fan, I wished I wasn't on the stage, but as a musician, I wouldn't have swapped it for anything, mm. if you know what I mean. Sure. And the third one is Paul Kelly, you know, and I played right. with his band quite a bit. You know, I was playing with them around the time of gossip and just after Post came out. And just his skill as a writer and the breadth of subject and banner and people carry his songs around with them all the time and I learned an awful lot from being on a stage with him. So they're the, for me, they're the three. And then, of course, there's Bob Dylan. And, there's in, and like I've been thinking more and more about the genius of Willie Dixon, who yes. really wrote Blue's songbook. I've actually got a note here to ask you whether Willie Dixon was an influence on you. I think his title is The Poet of the Blues, and that is so true. Yeah, but, in, but see, I, th- I don't think that that does him justice, because I think he, he, uh, he, he overleaps any restrictions of genre. Like if you listen to Wang Dang Doodle and Smokestack Lightning and things that he wrote for various artists, and he wrote to artists at times, you've got to go, this is high poetry, and it doesn't matter what genre of music it would be, I don't think it entirely does him justice. There's nothing wrong with being called a blues musician, in fact, it's a, it's a wonderful title to be given, but it puts boundaries around the music that some people won't cross over into, you know? And and he's a genius, just genius at what he does. And that becomes more and more apparent the more and more you operate within the blues scene that that high poetry that he wrote was just extraordinary. And he was a, a master bass player on top of all of that. Yeah, uh, and producer and A&R guy and uh, psychologist and, you know, everything. At the core of it, all of that, the core of all of those other things was him serving the songs that he wrote, you know? Yeah. If the sea was whiskey and I was a diving duck If the sea was whiskey and I was a diving Before I come back to more landlocked stuff, I guess you've already yeah. touched on having worked with Paul Kelly, and I should probably sort of point out to uh, the listeners outside of Australia who may not know you by name, but yeah. they sure know your harp work on uh, yeah. songs like Chocolate Cake by Crowded House and yeah. you know, indeed Dumb Things by Paul Kelly. You did sessions for Hunters and Collectors and 
uh, yeah. the bad loves who I believe you, I think so you recently performed with them at uh, the Mimo in yeah. St Kilda I think yeah. I mean you've already gone and indicated that you enjoy a lot you know, working with Chris Bailey and with X yeah. I mean do, is, is there like two sides that says right well you have this creative side where you want to get your own material out there you want to present your own songs but equally as a fan did you enjoy everyone who you've ever sort of played with did Hunters and Collectors mm. like did Seymour call you up and say hey we want you to play on this yeah part? well part of it was that when I made my first recording, I made the first the first EP I ever made. I made as a bet, and I made I had a bet with this friend of mine, Mick Geyer. He was the uh, program manager at PBS in the early days, mm-hmm. but he also did extraordinary interviews, and he had he had all these interviews with all these people that had come through town, like filmmakers, you know, musicians, writers, just. So many, and all he had to do was really compile them into a book, and he was gonna that he was gonna get published. And but he was always procrastinating. And <laughs> we had this bet in Fitzroy Street in St Kilda that I could make a record before he could make a book, and I didn't even play the guitar then. Yep. So we made the bet, and I, we walked up to Chapel Street, and I bought a guitar and a chord book, and I went home and I wrote these songs chord by chord and I made the record and beat him you know well, that was the bet and so uh, you know I've gone off I've gone off beam here but anyway wonderful wonderful that, yeah I don't know I'm sorry what was the question again uh, well, I think I think we're, we're talking <laughs> oh it was about playing with other, other people, people. Mm. yeah I just wanted to play with anybody I could but I just, that's what it is and on that EP was this guitarist, Barry Palmer, who I'd mm. played with in another band called The Soul Twisters. When Crown of Thorns started making their first album, Barry got picked up by Hunters and Collectors and said, will you come and play with us? And the other connection was that John Archer, who was the bass player with Hunters and Collectors, also recorded, was engineered a harem scare album that I was on mm-hmm. and so there was a, there was a crossover with the bands where they were sort of all bumping into each other and they when they made one of their albums they said come and play some harp on I think it was one, what's a few men so and my connection with Barry was a good part of that but the other the other bands that I played well the other things studio sessions I didn't have a, I'd never had a bad experience I always had a really good one you know it was like I was really lucky and I knew at the time that I was lucky to be in that place it was such a vibrant scene and the studios were so great did any of these people so like say for instance did Neil Finn say I have an idea what I'd like you to do or you said no just do your solo any way you see fit or for that matter like because your part in dumb things is yeah. very distinctive but it doesn't sound improvised yeah. Did he say here's a melody or hey no, Chris, what can you they, come up with? They always, always, without exception, I think, said just lay something down for us. Mm. They just never were prescriptive, you know. They, it was always just they always gave me my head, you know. I was really lucky in that way. They never said do that again. I want it like this or these are the notes I want. Mm-hmm. It was just always just go for it. I mean, that was part of the whole spirit of what was happening around at that time, you know. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were interested to see what other, what other people brought to the songs. That experience with Crowded Houses, fabulous, you know. Did um, you ever tour with them? What, I, what used to happen was I used to play on Monday nights at the Cherry Tree in Richmond mm-hmm. with the fellow draw areas and Paul Hester. And that was how I got to know him. He suggested putting some harmonica on these tracks. And so I did. I never toured with them, but they wanted me at one stage. Like the the line before I do my harp solo on chocolate cake is, here comes Mrs. Hairy Legs. And they wanted me to dress as Mrs. Hairy Legs and go on the road. 
songs on Landlock. I think that was uh, the focus of this show. But I'm having such a good time asking you about Mrs. Hairy Legs. Yeah. Uh, one of the most beautiful songs on the album, and I think truly one of the more beautiful songs in your whole repertoire is World Keeps Moving Sideways. In the hard grey light of another dawn, you filled your cup and you stagger home singing country to keep your devils at bay. And you find a place to rest your head in a cold embrace of another's bed singing surely Hank never did it that way Surely Hank never did it that way Did you have a female voice in your head when you asked Rebecca Barnard to do that? Or did Shane say, hey, I reckon this would be really good if Rebecca came on and, and sang something? Oh, no, I, I think after we got into the studio, I, could, I just heard that voice. But that was about down Brunswick Street. At the time, there was this, a country singer named A.P. Johnson. And um, I was down at St. Vincent's Hospital as his next of kin. So sometimes if he'd end up in the hospital, they'd ring me, you know. But he was uh, an extraordinary songwriter, and but a big influence on me. I met him when I was about 17 or 18, and he told me I was going to university. He said, give it up and go on the road. And I probably, in retrospect, think he was right, you know. But he was one of the real true characters of Fitzroy. And But I had wonderful conversations with him, but I learned a lot about music from him. And he was one of those self-made people. And I just, I got a weakness for them. And that song is sort of kind of about him, you know? It's like, like him, just the way he was. And, it's really got this beautiful, I hate using the word ethereal sound, but it, that really does. Yeah. It's just the very, this lovely uh, lightness of touch, this beautiful airiness. Shane's guitar on it is just and thank you. gorgeous. And, and, um, well, it's sort of like it's an early it's an early Fitzroy morning song, I reckon, you know? Sure. Like that one of those when you've had a, you stumble out of one of the pubs or something and the, the sun was just that grey dawns, you know, it was, it was just... It's like one of, that's one of those sort of songs for me. Another song that I kept playing a lot was um, your song Tits and Feathers. Well, nobody said the showbiz would be easy. She threw her wig and curlers in the sink. Ripped off a paste. Cross dragged to the bars of Cuba PD. She became 
Fantastic, so not quite rockabilly, but I guess it has something of that feel. A beautiful slice of life storytelling. So my question to you is: yeah. Did Madame X actually exist? Yes, yeah, she did. Like I, What's I, her story? Like I, I embroidered a lot of it, and a lot of it's fiction, but it's based around a woman that was in Melbourne. You know, it was just yeah. I, can't, I, can't, I don't know what I could say about it, but it's... Uh, it's <laughs> I mean, was she one of the first strippers to go the full Monty, as they say? Like, as in... Well, I, I don't song. know about that part of it, but... but um, it made for a good I lyric. tried to imagine what they would have gone through yep. in the terms of their work and life. And it was probably... The, the, the song's a little bit out of time. It probably... They weren't they didn't go back that far right. you know but i was also thinking about because i used to go up to sydney and play quite a bit and we'd play in the cross and it was uh, a little bit more not as glamorous as it had been when i was working up there but it was like the, the remnants of what of what had been strip clubs there if you know what i'm saying sure. and it was like i would think about you know what was it like you know what was it like to be part of that and doing it as a living and when it was in its what you would call its heyday and when wasn't it enough just to just to um you know strip down so far when did when did it become imperative that you go further and what did it how did it feel you know it wasn't burlesque anymore it was something else it was like i was thinking what it would have mean to this person you know it's a hard song to know. We only ever really got it sort of right once. The feel in it was... But the thing that I love in that song musically is the bass line, and it's just got this jiggy bass line in it that's so... Um, well, it just evokes what I'm trying to talk about, you know? Oh, absolutely. If you ever listen to it again, just listen to the bass line. I think it's masterful. It's just wonderful. I'd love mm. to have heard someone like either you know, Tom Waits in his asylum days cover it or mm. maybe even uh, don walker do a cover of it it just the lyric content seems to sort of fit both of them well don walker when you were talking about you know there are have other influences too i mean my you know my wife is a big influence on what she's a big influence on me her name is sarah carroll but she's yeah. a songwriter she was with Gitty as far as years. yeah mm. but she's a solo artist you know in in her own right but her Ability is an ongoing. She sets the bar really high, and she taught me a lot about country music. You know, like she used to go listen to this, listen to this, listen to this, and I, she taught me a lot about sort of rockabilly and stuff like that. You know, Don Walker is also a really big influence. Like he's exceptional, isn't he? Mm, like his absolutely. chord changes and see. Oh, the funny thing is, like I love cultures. I used to go and see him when it came down in Melbourne in the early days when they first started coming down. Mm-hmm. His friend of mine said, you've got to come and see this band, you know. But I love his solo stuff just as much. Oh, no, I love Don Walker's albums. The Catfish stuff and the text on yeah. Charlie stuff, is, it, it's exceptional songwriting. Yeah, but the ones with Don Walker on the cover are the ones that mm. do it for me. Like yeah. I just Some of the songs, 
Fucking unbelievable, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember um, a few years ago, I think before the last album, Hully Gully, came out, he did yeah. he did a, uh, a gig where he introduced that song, Everybody, and I just yeah. thought, holy shit, this is one of the best yeah. things I've heard from him in, in years. It's magnificent. And then yeah. the, the Cold Chisel, you know, who'd reformed, did their own spin on it, and I thought, this doesn't have the magic anymore. No offense to them, but yeah. it, it, it really, that song to me, belonged to Don's voice and yeah and it's such a distinctive way of presenting a song and then see I just you know love that stuff I love the stuff he does this is wonderful there used to be I think he had a a website and you could download a live concert from Queenscliff Music Festival and it's like it doesn't get much better than that you know it's Mm. just if you get the chance just look it up and you can download it for free you know and that's amazing Mm. I'll definitely uh, be following that up. I mean, I've probably seen Don Walker far more times mm. than I ever got to see Cold Chisel back in the day. But right. uh, but you know, every time Don's in Melbourne, yeah. And, and I got to say that you know, the Suave Fucks is the greatest band name ever. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back to your own material. Yeah. <laughs> another song that I really love, and I love the two interpretations that you have: one on Landlocked, and a very different one on Live at the Continental, and that's Wolves. The, the landlocked version has it's a sinister lyric really in a way with uh, Lucky's distinctive drum pattern on that it has yeah. this, this sinister approach and yet there's something more of I don't know romantic's not the word but there's this different approach that you use with Jack Sarolat's piano on yeah. Live at the Continental and Outside the countryside is barren The snow is covering the ground A certain feeling says I'm not the first to notice That the wolves are back in town And I said takes on like it's, it's being explained from a different character's perspective did yeah. you sort of think i want i want this to sound different i want you to think differently about the lyric by how the music is presented or oh i think well am i reading too much it, into it no no it's just um it's more about circumstances you know like i when my song was written i went on tour with paul kelly's band to america the first time i went over there and after the tour was finished i stayed in America for a while longer and I went to New Orleans and I went to Texas yep. and that was about that time you know 
I had a guitar with me and I was starting to write songs and stuff, but I just remember that time really starkly. I remember being on a, in a, a motel outside of Austin, Texas. It was winter and um, it was, you know, it was sort of harsh and a bit stark, the weather at that time. And, you know, and I was ringing home and, you know, people going, when are you coming back and all that sort of stuff. It was, I had to, you know, just come down off the tour. It had been such a, a peak experience. And I don't normally do that. I used to come straight home and jump back into it again. But I just needed a little bit of time just to decompress, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, there was also a Robert Lowell poem, American poet, called Skunk Hour, that I thought about a lot. And it's not the same subject matter or anything, but just that idea of, Something predatory, right? Just out of reach was sort of. It's not even in that Robert Lowell poem, but it suggests something like that. And I just, you know, I was just trying to capture some of that. You know, you know, Live at Connie was a funny album for me because I didn't know on the night that they were recording it. I didn't know till I actually got there. That was for Double J, and, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. and I hadn't done a gig as such for about a year. Because my mother and father both got really ill and I was sort of involved in looking after them. And then I just really didn't feel like playing. And um woman that worked at the Continental Maryland Tobacco said, just, just do one gig, just test the water. And I thought, well, if she asked me to do something, I would do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that whole album came out of one night at at the Continental, and it just it just on the particular night it worked. You know, it was like it was more luck than anything because I didn't know I didn't know anything about the recording. So that interpretation of the song came on the end of that period of my my life. You know, when I listen to that record, mm. that CD, I, I mean, there's a I, there's a certain detachment in it all. That I mean, I was involved in it, but I was in a sort of state of mind that I hadn't really been in. Before or after, to be honest. I, that's not too mysterious. <laughs> so that's sort of what influenced the way it was sung. Right. It's a, it's a gorgeous interpretation. And I love hearing that contrast between that and the uh, far more, I guess, you know, the, as you use the word predatory tone, which is predatory mm. musically. On, um, yeah. on the landlocked album, I, but mm. I, I love it when you get a, a reinterpretation of a song. You know, we don't want a lot of the best live albums are, are about reinterpretation rather than replicating what you've mm. heard before in the studio. Mm. Do you actually look back with fondness, if you're thinking at all, on landlocked? Yeah, I do. I mean, like uh, that was the closest I ever came to being on a major label. I made a commitment to try. I mean, the albums I'd made before then, we'd see when you talk about the production on those records, they were done under pretty small budgets, you know, mm-hmm. and they were done uh, like at Richmond Recorders, which was a really special. Are you aware of what's come out of there? Like that, the, that they basically documented a whole generation of players, like the birthday party and oh wow, um, yeah, the models and um, you know uh, the Olympic sideburns and painters and dockers and like all of that era came out of Richmond, you know. Mm. And you know I recorded there and um, uh, you know it was it was an amazing time. But Landlock was the first chance that I'd got to record under my own steam in one of those bigger establishments, you know, and it was a whole different ball game. It was 
different world, different approach, and not ridiculously so, but, you know, there was a little bit of... I didn't have to borrow money off anybody. Right. No? And so it was sort of, well, well let's try this, you know, let's, who can we get in to do that? And then, and then, of course, it's the, the sound of the record was a little bit more polished, you know. Unlike a lot of what came out throughout the 80s on major labels, you know, indeed like mm. Mushroom, it doesn't sound like it. Well, I mean, in the 90s, obviously, where there was mm. going mm. more towards uh, yeah. a more natural sounding, more yeah. acoustic type of production style but after having just gone through a decade of overly polished overly synthesized mm. albums that don't sound like they're allowed to breathe this mm. this might have had you know the extra budget but it doesn't sound like anything that had really come before it well the people around my band and me wouldn't have allowed it to become that like they they would have been hell to pay you know <laughs> like there was well yeah because we have these really heated discussions around the kitchen table and sometimes turned physical, you know, about what constitutes good music and what what's supposed to happen. And that was, it had to be, it had to have organic sounds on it. Otherwise it was, you'd probably get clobbered, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so look, yeah. thank you so much for uh, spending this time with me. My final question to you is yeah. actually suggested by uh, Mr. Pat Monahan of uh, Rocksteady yep. Records. Yeah. Um, he, um, I, I was telling him yesterday uh, that oh, we were going to be having this chat and he said, I'm not going to give you any details, but just ask Chris about yep. traveling through the US to see Lightning Hopkins. I went to America on my own at one stage and I was over there for like six or seven months and there was this festival in Houston called the Juneteenth Blues Festival and in Houston it's a festival to recognize the emancipation of slaves mm-hmm. in Texas. And they have this concert. I assume it still happened. The year that I was there, it was, it was like, just imagine the Maya Music Bowl and every night for three or four nights, you have a huge blues concert, you know. Incredible. The year that I turned up, it was uh, Lyndon Hopkins, John Lee Hooker, Big Mama Thornton, Holy Clifton moly. Chenier. Yeah, Clifton Chenier was the guest of honour. And um, Sherman Robertson, who was this gun guitar player. Anyway, and you turn up for sound check. Like, everybody was turned up for sound check with picnic baskets, you know. And, like, the party started at sound check, really. And then everybody would eat, and then the concert would start, and everybody would dance. And, but it was just hog heaven, you know. Like, it was, I got to see all the... All, most of the great people wanted to see in one spot, you know. Like, it was amazing. And um, Lyndon Hopkins, of course, lived in Houston, and he was, like, everybody knew of him, but he was a folk hero, and so he came on, and he was larger than life. And I was really incredibly fortunate to see him play, you know, because he's now, like, he has an enormous influence on me. You know, I've got, like, I always bought Lyndon Hopkins albums because you'd see them in the in a shop and they'd be like five or ten bucks and they always had the best covers so I just kept buying them. I got like a <laughs> forty albums of his, you know. Wow. And he rocked like hell and he was such an influence on every guitar player of any stripe that came out of Texas, you know. You know, I had a wonderful time over there. I saw a lot of great music, but I spent most of my time down the south and I travelled around on Greyhound buses, you know. If you got the late bus, you didn't have to get a hotel, you know. Mm. sleep on the bus. Oh, it was just amazing, an amazing time. I was really lucky to, and I, I, I saw Clifton Chenier, the great Zydeco sure. accordion player. I'd seen him in Louisiana about a week before, 
this place called the Grand Street Dance Hall, and it was him in his natural habitat, you know. Then I saw him a week later playing at the Juneteenth Blues Festival mm. with Dr. John on piano, and he had like a full band, you know. And he was he was incredible. Mm. But yeah, I just I will never forget that time. It was wonderful. Absolutely, mm. there's magnificent memories. Mm. All right, look, thank you so much, Chris. I've really, really appreciated your time. I mean, to be honest with you, I probably could have spent another three, four hours asking you questions beyond the landlock oh. period and, and stuff, but I've really valued the time that we've had. And, uh, Good on you. Thanks. Thanks thank for letting me do it. Much appreciated. So uh, anyway, listeners, stay tuned. We'll be uh, back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 99. Cross not the devil, skated cross your soul, your party dirt, then pirouetted. He held the bottle to your lips and had you saying things we all regretted. Your boot heels tapped out out of using Morse code on the pavement as you staggered out the door. But your tongue is made of barbed wire dipped in turpentine and tar and something jagged. I couldn't love you more. Well, take my hand, big mouth baby. I wanna be your man. Don't you understand? You got a big mouth baby, but I'm your man. and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. Out, out, out. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. One, two, one, two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love. With Eric Reanimator. A Lardy D, a one, two, three, Eric the Reanimator.
Hey there, Love That Album listeners. This is Eric Ranimator, back with another Album I Love segment. This time around, the 2004 album by The Haints called Hurt and Alone. Starting off there with the first track on the album, and this is an eight-track album, so it's kind of between an EP and an album, but that is a cover of Daniel Johnston's Devil Town. And if those vocals sound at all familiar to you, you might know the band The Groovy Ghoulies. I'm sure I've spoken about them before. The Haints were the ghoulies in their kind of stripped-down acoustic vibe, uh, doing something a little bit different. Doing some covers that they did as a full-blown pop-punk band and also some uh, originals of theirs that they uh, stripped down to the kind of folk country Americana format. So without further ado, let's check out some more of the tracks on this. picked this album to go along with the main episode's coverage of Chris Wilson because that to me had a very Americana uh, country folk kind of a feel to it and while Kepi's voice doesn't have that big booming resonance of uh, Wilson's voice there's something in the pathos in the voice that I kind of heard an echo of in uh, Kepi's voice and you know I there was a second Hayden's album that came out and I never bothered to pick it up and 
went out of print and I need to track down a copy. Uh, but, you know, this, this is the reason that you hold on to music because while something might not have hit you exactly the way you wanted to the first time or when you were at a certain point in your life, later on it may hit you just right. And this was on Springman Records, which wasn't a big label. It's not a big label, so it's not the kind of thing that you're going to see a billion copies of floating around. Although in this day and age of people purging their CDs, who knows? At any rate, uh, I always like Kepi's stuff. He's got a new album coming out. Uh, after the Ghoulies split, he put out several solo albums, uh, sometimes re-recording old Ghoulies material, sometimes with new songs. In my opinion, it's all worth checking out. And he actually did a record called Kepi Goes Country, which is, once again, him taking the Ghoulies song catalog and stripping it down to kind of a country roots feel and then like a couple of country covers including Ring of Fire on there. So I'm going to leave now with the cover of Message to Pretty which was by the band Love. I hope everyone's doing well and I'll catch you all next time. segment and many thanks as well to chris wilson for joining me for episode 99 of love that album to talk about his 1992 album landlocked a real big thrill there for me to have that discussion with chris i've been a fan for a long time as you could hear and landlocked is definitely an album that you should search out if you have not already done so i hope the little clips that i've included in this episode persuade you to go and do so all right so we come to the end of episode 99 which means for those of you who are not mathematically astute that the next episode in April of 2017 will be episode 100. I really did not count on getting to this stage just you know, five and a half years ago. This is something I was doing for a bit of a lark. Now, I started doing this show you know, once every couple of weeks and then once every three weeks. And the last few years, it's been once every four weeks. Thank very much to Eric Reanimator for putting out his compilation episode. So you still average out two episodes of Love That Album a month. But insofar as my own episodes go, we have now arrived at episode 100. And I guess, to be honest, there have been a few episodes that Eric and Tim and John Ross and I'm sure someone else, oh yes, Michael Persh and Dave Blom have covered for me. So I guess to be truthful, I haven't done 100 episodes of Love That Album, but the main program, the mothership, the one that's not the compilation episodes, it reaches 100 episodes in April of 2017. So what am I going to do for episode 100? Well, I've been thinking about this
this for a long time. Originally, the plan was to cover two albums that I guess if you've been a listener to this program for a long time, you sort of knew were inevitable. I was thinking that one of the albums to be covered should be the Replacements album, Please to Meet Me, because pretty much since the beginning of the program, I've been using their song Alex Chiltwell, a portion thereof, for fair use, as the theme song for the Love That Album program. So I guess it's inevitable that that album is to be covered, but it won't be for episode 100 as I'd originally planned. That will come somewhere further down the line, maybe for episode 150 if I get to it. But the album that I am going to cover is the one that should have been in episode 2, if you know anything about the Hyatt curse. And yes, I'm endangering myself by just using that name at this point. I went and discussed with my good friend Jeff Smith in episode 2 the album Bring the Family. Now, it's a story I brought up on the show, and it's a story that I've also gone and put in the Facebook page a long time ago. But the recording of that episode, it wasn't so successful. We spent the first 35, 40 minutes talking about albums that we'd been listening to recently and talking a little bit about John Hyatt's background. And then when it came to the main meat of the episode, which was talking about the album Bring the Family, the recording didn't go so well. There was noise, there was crackle, there was all sorts of stuff. So I decided that we'd record it again. And a couple of weeks later, Jeff and I got together and we recorded episode two again, speaking about Bring the Family. And then during the editing, I think I just did something stupid like delete the discussion. I was new to podcast editing, folks. You've got to not hold that against me. So we decided that we couldn't do it a third time, at least not back then. So I went and released just the 30 or 40 minutes of discussion, the peripheral sort of stuff as it was. And that's what episode two of Love That Album is. It's, I think I called it not quite John Hyatt or something equally witty. But here it is, episode 100. And I've discussed this with Jeff and we decided we'll give it a final try. If we can get through this and be successful then we'll let it go up. If there's a problem with the recording, then I guess we're just not ever meant to speak about John Hyatt's Bring the Family on this program. But fingers crossed that it works out a little bit more successful this time. There's always often been a curse where I've ever gone and mentioned John Hyatt over the last five years. Something bad has happened in my life. I really want to get rid of this curse and just make sure that, you know, it's just a silly little superstition. But if something bad does happen, it will prove beyond doubt that mentioning John Hyatt in the Love That Album world is basically an evil thing. It's a curse. It's not just meaningless superstition. There is something genuine about it. I'll probably mention this in episode 100 as well, just in case there are some people who listen to that that aren't listening to this right now. But I actually have tried contacting John Hyatt's management three times to see if I could get an interview with him for the program. And I even went and told them a little bit about you know this story about the problems that I had with editing the show back in episode two and how it all disappeared. I didn't get a rejection. They just ignored me completely. I'm very, very upset. But if you happen to have an in with John Hyatt, I would completely be grateful to you for sending him an email and seeing if he could get back to me and see whether he'd like to discuss Bring the Family on episode 100 of Love That Album. Don't even worry about writing great reviews on iTunes or anything like that. Get me John Hyatt. We'll be square. Thank you so much. So uh, (laughs) anyway, we're heading into episode 100. Have I mentioned that? Yes, I have. And if you feel like you want to uh, send an email of encouragement or just say, good job, really, enjoying the show or even you're doing a shit job this is how you could do better i understand that that's fine criticism is what one must expect when one goes and puts oneself out there how many times can i mention one in one sentence several times it would appear but seriously if uh, you want to get in contact with me send me an email at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au 
100 episodes, it's a big thing for me. I know that there are a lot of other programs out there that I've listened to, some that even started after I got started that got well past the 100 episode mark. Uh, some great shows that are past the 300, 500 mark and really they're just getting on with the job 100 episodes it doesn't seem like such a big deal compared to some of my favorite programs but it's a big thing in my world so if you want to send me a note or just a pat on the back or a kick in the ass i'm happy either way but just to acknowledge that the show exists and that you're digging on it or you think it's got problems either way i'm cool with that send me an email to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au and we'll play your feedback on the episode 100 all right i think i've blathered on for too long so until next time look after each other be nice to each other listen to some great music watch some great films read some great literature and just generally be great cheers It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.